And I totally get where gun advocates are coming from when they feel that they are being punished with gun legislation when a bad guy, you know, carries out a mass shooting or a crime with a gun. There are certain regulations that I think don't punish law-abiding gun owners while also making it difficult, increasingly difficult for criminals to get their hands on guns. Closing gun show loopholes, for instance. Um, Closing loopholes where you wouldn't need to go through a background check, like uh, buying a gun from a private seller, for instance. I think closing those loopholes makes sense. But at the same time, just doing that alone, I don't think is going to solve this problem. I think that you're right. I think that there is a mental health crisis in the country, and we absolutely need to be serious about combating it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, we are going to be reacting to a conversation that happened on the uh, Patrick Beck David podcast. Um, you know, we've covered a few of his videos in the past, a few of the discussions where he advocates for some sort of gun control. I know sometimes there are people on the podcast for Patrick Bett where they uh, claim to be pro two way. Now, in this conversation, they're talking about the recent incident that happened in Maine. And then you have some of the panelists. Um, I don't believe Patrick makes a comment himself, but a lot of the panelists on this podcast are advocating for things like red flag laws, uh, universal background checks or closing the so-called gun show loophole and a lot of other things that's being advocated in this podcast that really sounds like gun control. It's a shame because I absolutely love Patrick Bet David's podcast, but it seems like the sentiment tends to be whenever they talk about guns, a lot of gun control is being advocated for. So let's dig into what they are saying. Next story I want to go to is what happened yesterday with uh, the the shooting that took place, 22 dead, 16 injured, and still on the run. So I'm going to stop there because I don't want to glorify this individual and glorify a lot of you are familiar now with the situation that happened in Maine. So, you know, here, this was, I believe, just a couple days after this incident happened or maybe just even the next day. So they're giving a lot of the information. I'm not going to glorify this individual. I'm not going to give this individual that committed this atrocity any more attention. But I want to focus more on You know, a lot of times after these types of incidents happen, there is response by both the left and the right. And, you know, a lot of these podcasts like the Patrick Bet David podcast and the Valuetainment channel here, they position themselves as kind of not being left or right, um, trying to push a more, I guess, neutral narrative. Sometimes I'm not really sure what their political leaning is. A lot of the times I know Patrick has made multiple Instagram posts and multiple comments saying that he is pro-Second Amendment, pro-gun, but then you hear conversations like this in response to these types of incidents, and a lot of the things being advocated for on this podcast actually are gun control measures that you know organizations like Everytown, Giffords, Mom Demand Actions would agree with and actually want to put in place. So now I'm going to jump forward a little bit in this discussion to where the panel starts talking about the things that they're advocating for as far as gun control. Everybody on the left is going to say, guns, take the guns, we have to get guns. But think about this, Ovaldi shooter, mentally ill, El Paso shooter, mentally ill, Parkland shooter, Lewinson, Nashville, Fort Hood, Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, all mental illness. And they say America has a gun problem. No, no, we have a mental health problem. How the, explain to me, everybody here, explain to me how the guy has said on, on record, I want to go and shoot a bunch of people in this place. The FBI- At my old base, my place of work. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, on a military base. And the FBI, it's like, it's almost as if the FBI 
constantly drops the ball because they have so much other things going on, like going after parents at school board meetings for protecting kids. So I mean, I agree a lot of the conversation they start from the point of it's a mental health issue. Now, I agree we have a huge mental health issue and a lot of crime issues here in the United States that just goes completely ignored when these types of incidents happen. And a lot of times, like he's mentioning here, the left just calls for more gun control. We saw recently after the Uvalde incident, what happened? Well, they called for gun control. And then we got a bill passed um, that was passed through the House and Senate, and it was the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. It was passed and pushed through through a bunch of rhinos compromising with the left to put in place some form of gun control. And a lot of those things that you see in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act would have done absolutely nothing to stop that specific incident or any of these other incidents. Uh, again, the Bipartisan Safer Community Act was advocated for and passed after Uvalde, and the whole claim behind it was it was supposed to stop any of these future incidents. Well, did it stop any future incident? No, it did not. Would it have even stopped that one specific incident or Nashville or any of these other ones? No, it wouldn't have stopped absolutely anything. Instead, it gave the government more power, it gave the bureaucracy more power to infringe on our right to keep and bear arms. A lot of the things that we see in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is it's incentivizing more states through federal funding, through our taxpayer dollars, incentivizing those states to pass their own state level red flag laws to implement them more aggressively. But again, it's stopping absolutely nothing. Then another thing that it does, it claims to close the so-called boyfriend loophole. And it's funny, anytime um, that the law doesn't touch something, they just call it a loophole. But it just means that there is no law in place. There is nothing you know that makes any of that conduct illegal. So they talk about closing the boyfriend loophole in the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, where essentially any intimate partner, and it doesn't even mean you have to be really in a relationship with anybody. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be in a serious relationship with anybody. Uh, it could be casual acquaintances, anything like that. Those individuals could red flag you or try to get a domestic violence training order against you. Um, so it, it loosened a lot of those restrictions. It also targeted uh, people of younger ages, 18 to 21, and tried to restrict their access to firearms even more, opening up juvenile records to further restrict their ability to acquire firearms. And then one of the very significant things it did is it changed some of the language about who is engaged in the business of dealing firearms and what happened after that. Well, the ATF took that language that was put in the Bipartisan Safety Communities Act and changed, you know, what had changed some of that federal language. And the ATF is running with that to now target private party sales. And they have actually introduced a new rule. They've introduced a proposed rule, which right now is open for commenting and you can comment against it. And the whole goal of that is to classify pretty much any private transactions. If you engage in private transactions, they want to say that you're engaged in the business of dealing firearms and therefore restrict private party transactions and close this so-called gun show loophole, which we'll talk about that later, because one of the other panelists here on the podcast talks about closing the gun show loophole and how that should be in place. Um, but this is all to say, you know, we have a mental health issue. Every time one of these incidents happen, and I'm, I'm shocked, you know, something hasn't popped up yet. They're talking about a new uh, assault weapon ban is one of the things being pushed for right now in direct response to what happened recently in Maine. Um, but every time they try to push some form of gun control, that wouldn't have stopped this incident or any other incident. And then they get it passed. And then another incident pops up because we have a mental health issue, not a firearms issue. We have an evil issue. You know, there's evil in the world. And then. You know, after a new incident, they push for more gun control and never actually address the underlying true issues. So he was in a mental health facility for two weeks. So after making a threat, he was appropriately, you know, uh, 
placed in the facility and he's there for two weeks. Wait, I thought we had the um, the whistleblower law. I think my, bro- my brother has guns, and I think he's really loose right now. I think there's some real problems going on. I think someone should go over there. And guess what? The authorities go over to the house, and they take the weapons. They say, okay, you have a gun. No, no, sorry. You, you can't have these. You got to give these. Where, wh- wh- how did he have the weapons? Is that a federal did- law or is that a state law? I think I- it really depends, right? Because yeah. I don't think we have a federal law like that. No, um, no it's, not, it's, it's not federal. We, we haven't got through two-thirds on that. Right. Yeah. So so the reason why I bring that up is because each state has I mean, it's ridiculous. Each state has its own gun laws. And so some states have implemented red flag laws. I don't know if Maine is one of them. Obviously, the story broke last night. Yeah, so we all the, yeah I like a lot that. of yeah. details. So I want to stop here because you can see how this discussion is rapidly shifting to advocating for gun control. First, what they're talking about are red flag laws. So in some sense, they're at, they're advocating they're not in some sense. What this panelist right here is actually advocating for is a national federal law, a national red flag law. It's been proposed multiple times. It has never passed. The closest thing they have gotten to was the recent Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, where instead of actually implementing a federal red flag law, what they are doing is they are trying to incentivize through federal fundings for states to put in place more aggressive red flag laws. But right now, there are multiple states that have their form of red flag laws. Um, For example, I'm here in California, so we have our extreme risk protection orders. And those can have a ton of issues, uh, constitutional due process issues, uh, Second Amendment violations. They can happen on an ex parte basis, which means, again, without your knowledge at all, someone could red flag you. you. And um, one of the other issues, which seems like they're advocating for, is a lot of these state level red flag laws are very broad about who can actually try to get that order against you. You know, in some states, it's limited to just law enforcement, but in states like California, it's expanded to friends, family, uh, coworkers, employees, uh, medical professionals, along with law enforcement, just a whole litany of people who can say, hey, I think this person is dangerous. Therefore, on an ex parte basis, law enforcement, you should go in, search and seize their home without due process and do all this on your own and then confiscate your firearms. So violating due process and then also violating your right to keep and bear arms. And that is something they're advocating for here. They're saying it's stupid that on a state by state basis, you know, they should be able to put in place red flag laws. We should have some sort of national system, which, again, that's advocating for national gun control um, violations of the Second Amendment. And we can get into, um, you know, how do you actually determine if that is a violation of the Second Amendment? Well, first and foremost, the Second Amendment says shall not be infringed. But I know a lot of them say, well, that's kind of just a flippant response. But then, okay, let's look at the legal analysis when it comes to red flag laws. And this is something that's being argued right now, specifically in relation to domestic violence training orders. And in just this week, the Supreme Court is going to hear a case about the federal law, which deals with domestic violence restraining orders and who are prohibited people who can't possess firearms because of this uh, civil loose procedure that goes on. And the whole analysis is first, who are the people as mentioned in the text of the Second Amendment? My my contention is that the people that the founders understood that they intended to cover in the Second Amendment were all law-abiding citizens. Now, then the question comes, you know, who gets to determine who's law-abiding or not? 
is the fact that you are subject to a domestic violence restraining order or you're subject to something like a nonviolent felony. Does that mean that you're not a law abiding person? You fall outside the class that people are protected by the Second Amendment. Again, my contention is no, because when you look at the founding error, there was no historical analogs. And again, this is an analysis being done under Bruin. The recent Supreme Court Second Amendment decision says you look at historical analysis. You look at the historical context of 1791. Are there any historical restrictions or laws or analogs that would point you to this type of government restriction being justified? There are none. There is nothing that would support this. The closest thing that the government could ever show to some sort of restriction on the possession of firearms tend to be discriminatory laws, um, discriminating against certain ethnic groups or religious groups. And a lot of courts are throwing those out, but that is the best type of analogs that the government can use to try to justify these types of restrictions. They're advocating for national red flag laws. They're advocating for national gun control. Now, there are other federal laws in place that could have prevented this specific individual from being in possession of firearms. Again, there are federal laws about that because he was institutionalized, I believe against his own will, they could have got a court order. They could have gone through the, the actual federal process to uh, get in possession of those firearms and restrict his possessions. And he was also, you know, identified by the FBI being a person that is a risk to others. And so what more could you ask for? What more would these national red flag laws have done? What would, you know, the FBI was aware of who this individual was and they did absolutely nothing. And that has been the truth for multiple incidents like Uvalde and others. The FBI is aware of these individuals and nothing happens. So what do you think a red flag law is going to do at a national or a state level when it our own agencies are absolutely failing at their jobs. At that point, all you're doing is putting in place a federal or state law that is then going to impact law-abiding people, but not actually affect those individuals that you're trying to target. I do think, look, I'm I'm a believer in the Second Amendment. I've never, I've never supported, you know, banning guns. But as I've gotten older and now living in California in the state that it's in, I do believe in having a firearm for self-protection, for self-defense. And I totally get where gun advocates are coming from when they feel that they are being punished with gun legislation when a bad guy, you know, carries out a mass shooting or a crime with a gun. I don't think that law-abiding citizens should be punished, which is why I think there are certain regulations that I think don't punish law-abiding gun owners while also making it difficult, increasingly difficult for criminals to get their hands on guns. So closing gun show loopholes, for instance, um, closing loopholes where you wouldn't need to go through a background check, like uh, buying a gun from a private seller, for instance. I think closing those loopholes makes sense. Going through a background check ain't a big deal, right? Um, but at the same time, just doing that alone, I don't think is going to solve this problem. I think that you're right. I think that there is a mental health crisis in the country, and we absolutely need to be serious about combating it. So first, she starts out by saying she supports the Second Amendment. She believes in the right to own firearms. And then you hear the big but. So this is one of those things we talk about all the time where people say, hey, I believe in the Second Amendment. I believe in your right to possess firearms. But... And then what you heard all after that was an advocate, you know, her advocating for a form of gun control, national red flag laws. And then she also talks about closing the so-called gun show loophole. Now, her claiming that she supports the Second Amendment, I'm surprised she's still using that terminology. 
But let's talk about what the gun show loophole is and what they try to lump into what the gun show loopholes they claim. And a lot of times when you hear this talked about in the media, they try to act as if people go to gun shows and then it's just the Wild West. People are just buying firearms and nothing is is there is no checks. You know, criminals are going to gun shows and buying these these firearms. That's not what's happening at all. Um, at the gun show, if you're buying from someone who's an FFL, you have to go through, you know, a background check. You have to go through the traditional process if you're buying from someone who's an FFL. Uh, traditionally, what they are trying to claim is the so-called gun show loophole is just private party transactions. Um, you know, a peer-to-peer -peer transaction where I have a firearm and I want to sell to someone, you know, under federal law, you are not required to have to go through a background check or an FFL to engage in that transaction because you have your own private property that you're transferring to someone else. Now, there are federal laws in place that says that if you know that that individual is prohibited from being in possession of a firearm, then you cannot sell that firearm to that person. And if you do, uh, then you are going to, be going to be held liable. So there are federal laws in place that are there in place to potentially prevent you from selling a firearm to someone you know is, is prohibited. Um, but what they're advocating primarily for here is closing this so-called boyfriend loophole, or sometimes they call it a gun show loophole, or sometimes they call it universal background checks. And there, they're just trying to place restrictions on private party transactions. And it's interesting because obviously they haven't done their homework. This is something that is currently trying to be put in place right now because of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Um, they're advocating for this and the ATF has introduced a proposed rule where, they, again, they're trying to claim anyone could potentially be engaged in the business of dealing firearms. And therefore, almost every private party transaction would have to go through an FFL and a background check would have to be run and all of those things because of what was recently done through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And there's a whole lot of um, you know, there's going to be challenges to whether or not the ATF even had that authority to try to bend some of that language uh, that was put in the Bipartisan Safe Communities Act to try to do this. That is all kind of more the logistics aspect and some of the legal implications with the current Bipartisan Safe Communities Act. But then you just talk about the constitutional question as well. Let's we always have to go back to what does our Bill of Rights say? What is the Second Amendment's intent when the founders put it in place? Because I'm of the opinion that the Constitution is not this malleable document that you can just make it mean what it, it what you want it to mean based on current times. The founders put in place the text to mean what it says and mean what it says for future generations. And it says shall not be infringed. So and you have your right to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment. Again, looking at the recent Supreme Court Bruin analysis, you would look at history dating back to 1791. Is there any historical support to place a government restraint, a government check and government permission on you selling your firearm to someone else? The founders, I can tell you, would absolutely and all these people would probably concede that the founders would absolutely scoff at the idea that the founders intended the Second Amendment to mean uh, that the government could place a, that type of restriction on private party transactions. And the government here, the ATF, the DOJ, whoever, the FBI, would have no ability to point to any historical analogs that support that type of contention. And so, again, I just want to frame this all in as some sort of counterpoint because this has gone out at this point. I think it's only been about 10 days when I'm filming this. It says the video is 10 days old. It's already gone out to about 200,000 people. Plus the, and this is just on the clips part of it. And I think it's gone out to the main podcast, probably to millions of people on audio and video side. And here you hear people saying that they are pro second amendment, that they are the people who are pro second amendment, but 
They are advocating for national red flag laws and then also closing the so-called gun show loophole, essentially just advocating for uh, federal restrictions on private party transactions. And that's why I have a huge issue with this type of narrative. You know, there is some common sense here about closing the gun show loophole. And when everybody sicks about that in the Second Amendment, what they fail to notice, if two private people sell a car, a motorcycle, a boat, or a jet ski, there is a form you have to fill out and you have to take it downtown because there's license plates on that, because there needs to be insurance on that. So it seems pretty reasonable that, you know, whoever owns what serial number, that just like when you bought the gun the first time, that serial number gets to transferred to somebody else. Um, so I want to stop there, and this is one of the main things I wanted to address, because this is one of those common things you hear pop up primarily by the anti-gun side. So again, interesting that this is being advocated for on this claimed pro-2A panel, I guess, um, you know, having this discussion. But they're as advocating for common sense, you know, gun control or gun laws. So oftentimes you'll hear, well, when you transfer a vehicle, you have to go through the DMV and you have to do you know, your registration and transfer the title and do all those things. First and foremost, let's talk about fundamental rights. Your right to keep and bear arm is a fundamental enumerated right. It is the Second Amendment of our U.S. Constitution. Your right to carry a vehicle, although potentially a a right, a potentially fundamental right to free movement. Maybe you can make that argument, but it's not a fundamental enumerated right. The Second Amendment is a fundamental enumerated right, and it says it has that unqualified command, which Justice Thomas said, an unqualified command of shall not be infringed. So that is the standard in which you must place any potential federal bureaucratic restriction against the fundamental right. So again, drastic difference between a fundamental enumerated right, which is the, you know, the Second Amendment, it tells what the government shall not do, it shall not infringe on this fundamental human right, this God-given right, in my opinion. It says what the government shall not do versus your ability to drive a vehicle or own a vehicle. So two very different distinctions. Okay, and let's talk about the practical effect. So you believe that because we have this process in place where the Department of Motor Vehicles, your DMV, because we have this process for doing vehicles and registration and smog, all those things, we should also have that in place for firearms. So you are advocating, you believe the DMV, this bureaucratic system is so efficient, so amazing that we should apply that also to firearms. I don't know about you guys, but to me, the bureaucratic system of the DMV, especially here in California, is so horrible, I would never want a similar type of process to be applied to firearms. Now, we do have some sort of system here in California when it comes to private party transactions. Recently, California passed a state-level law, which I'm sure none of them are aware of. You know, you have one individual here who says she's from California, but I'm sure she does not know that we have the California law that was passed, which is the firearms precursor part law. Um, you know, and you have the California DOJ and the the the, the system that they have in place where if you want to purchase, you know, you, you have to engage in private party transactions. You have to go through um, an FFL, do the background check, the 10 day waiting period, and then also the firearm precursor law, where if you want to do anything with so-called ghost guns, essentially just 80 percenters or just pieces of plastic and parts, you also have to go through the same system. And again, a bureaucratic system you believe is so efficient and you want to give all this power to the government to then run that process to then place restrictions on your fundamental human God-given right to defend yourself. There are 
a lot of issues with saying, well, because we have this process in place with the DMV and vehicles, it's awesome. And we should put that and apply it to your fundamental human right to keep and bear arms and defend yourself. To me, I am all for giving the government as little ability as possible, because every time you give them power or put a system, give them the power to put a system in place, they have shown that they are absolutely incompetent. Again, as the FBI, the national government show showed here in this specific incident with this individual in Maine, they were aware they had certain powers, but they're incompetent and they did absolutely nothing. So I am for giving the government absolutely no power because the Second Amendment says that we can give them no power, shall not be infringed. A lot of these solutions that are being proposed, you know, a lot of times on our side, we talk about mental health. Yes, we talk about we have a mental health issue, but that doesn't necessarily mean I believe a state like California is the best one equipped to deal with that issue. Because, for example, the state of California takes billions and billions of dollars every single year from me and other taxpayers for claimed purposes like mental health and homelessness. And yet what we have seen is the bureaucratic system, these, you know, bureaucrats in California, the governor and all of his cronies are absolutely horrible at solving that issue because they don't really want to solve that issue. They're just lining their pockets. But we've seen homelessness rise in areas like L.A. and San Francisco is an absolute just apocalyptic town. You Businesses are closing at rapid paces. People are moving out of the city and moving out of California because of how bad it is. My specific little small hometown in you know agricultural land, Central California, which is a fairly red area, is now being infiltrated because of the homelessness issue in California has gotten so bad to where all these homeless individuals and mental health issue people are moving from big cities, LA and San Francisco, because there are just so many of them. They're coming from other states because they know they can get all this free assistance from the state and they're giving them all this money and it's not solving anything. And funding is not an issue. They're talking about here that funding's an issue. Funding is not an issue. It's whenever you give that funding to left-leaning ideology and saying, oh, here's all this money, go fix the problem. They've shown that they are absolutely incompetent of doing that. And it's become an issue here in California. And I know that because I live in California. I go to L.A. frequently. I go to San Francisco frequently. In my own hometown, it's being affected. So funding is not an issue. It's a ideology issue. And if you give that funding to people who are just going to line their pockets and not do the right thing, then it becomes a huge issue. And again, I would point you to the discussion that Koyan Noir had with Joe Rogan about the homelessness issue. He had a lot of statistics and a lot of information about that. And I think he opened Joe Rogan's eyes to that. And it was an absolutely important discussion. And I would, again, just point you guys to go watch that. Oh, he's, he's even out, caught? No, no, hell no. He's out and about. And he's he has military army reservist and a firearms instructor. He's, he has military Can, training. Because yeah. you did some research. Just, yeah, so. so with this guy, I was watching um, a news report about him today, and the authorities are actually very concerned with how... They should be. Yeah, I mean, how skilled he is with this weaponry. Yeah. And so, obviously, there's a manhunt. I have no doubt that they're going to find him. Uh, but, you know, I, I also understand where the law enforcement is coming from on this because they're <laughs> concerned with how skilled he is. Yep. So, last thing I want to address, it was always interesting, that initial narrative where they talk about he was a firearms instructor. Now, I think that came out and being, was debunked that he was not a firearms instructor of, by any means. But... Even that, if you were really pro Second Amendment and you were actually in the gun community, you would know that just because someone is a certified instructor, like an NRA certified instructor, those are a diamond dozen. 
Almost anybody easily can get an NRA certification. It's not impressive at all. Doesn't mean they know anything about firearms or, or any way are hyper-trained. Um, if anything, most of the times, whenever I hear someone say, oh, or I see on someone's Instagram or whatever, or YouTube channel, I'm an NRA certified instructor. It's kind of gross to me because I understand a lot of people do that to get the insurance, but if someone's heavily leaning into that as, as if it's something of importance, it means absolutely nothing. It's kind of like when someone tells me, oh, well, I have my CCW permit, although I believe that's amazing. Exercise your fundamental right, but especially here in California with the classes we have in place, a lot of people lean on that thinking that they really know how to shoot firearms, that they are um, well-versed in handgun use or firearms use, um, and what you will find is you know, those classes do not make you an expert by any means in firearms. Um, I would say if you're doing outside instruction, outside courses, like the recent one I did where it was a you know eight hour dedicated red dot focused handgun course with Manzano Tactical, okay, then maybe um, if you're doing a lot of courses like that, I would be concerned about that individual and the level of training that they have. And even, even if someone's a police officer, or even if someone's in the military, not impressed with that either, because again, I go to a lot of training courses and sometimes the worst shooters in the group. And if you've been to training courses, you will know this too. A lot of times someone who's military or law enforcement, they tend to they can be some of the worst shooters because just because you're in those professions does not mean you know how to actually perform with a firearm. Um, although it might be part of the job, doesn't mean that they are well-versed in firearms. Um, so again, it's just always interesting some of the narrative that gets spun with this. Um, but I just wanted to address this because some people are sending this to me. I've done videos on the past, specifically on Patrick Betts' beliefs and some of the gun control he has advocated for, like mandatory waiting periods and age restrictions and things of that nature, um, all while saying, you know, he is pro-Second Amendment and pro-gun. And I believe he believes that he is pro-Second Amendment, but there are inherent issues with saying you are pro-Second Amendment, but then you say you advocated for, for certain national gun control um, ideas. And that's exactly what was happening on this podcast. A lot of these people were saying we're pro second amendment, we're pro gun, but dot, dot, dot. We believe in national red flag laws. We believe in closing the so-called gun show loophole and all these other things that they're advocating for, which is essentially gun control. And in my book, if you're advocating for national gun control, by no means are you pro second amendment. So just kind of my quick insight into um, what was happening here on this recent reaction to what happened in Maine on the Patrick Bet David podcast. Let me know what you guys think down below in the comment section. If you're listening to this on the audio side, make sure you guys uh, follow and leave a review because that really does help the chant that podcast side to grow. And again, if you're watching here on the YouTube side, you can get this available on the audio side. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere that you guys listen to audio. So again, thank you guys so much for all of your support. Let me know what you guys think about this discussion down in the comment section. But as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And never forget this nation was built by armed scholars and this nation will be maintained by armed scholars.